0: So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Hi, John. Thanks for joining us.
0: Hi, Chris. Good
2: to be here.
1: Fantastic. So we have a lot of things to talk about today. I have been looking at some of the work you are doing as a customer experience expert and your background as well. I enjoyed reading your new book, and I think a great place to start is I would love to hear your story of how you ended up at Princeton studying cognitive science and what led you to dedicate your professional career to understanding how to improve customer experience. If you would, take us all the way back to your childhood and share with us your story.
2: Oh, gosh, all the way back to my childhood. It sounds like we've got a therapy session here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there wasn't anything. I uh, you know, I grew up on Long Island in New York in the U.S. Um, and uh, lived there really all my life until I went off to college. Um, nothing extraordinary about my upbringing. When I went to college, uh, I actually originally was a declared co- uh, computer science major. And then in my sophomore year, beginning of sophomore year, I took a discrete mathematics course, which was a requirement for my comp sci degree. And that's when I realized comp sci was not for me, at least not the type of computer science that I liked. And so, um, you know, something that I was always interested in with computer science was artificial intelligence. And so I kind of pivoted and decided to focus on cognitive science because I was always fascinated by... How the human mind works, and also how to get computers to replicate the thought process of the human mind. And so that was kind of what led me into cognitive science, which was the ultimate major that I graduated from college with. But then, you know, to explain sort of how I got into the business world at college, I um, wanted to have a radio show at the college radio station. And so I walked into the radio station one day and I was like, hey, I'd like to be a DJ and do a radio show. And they were like, hey, great. But if you want anything other than the graveyard shift, you need to sell radio ads for the station because the station actually was not university supported. It was a commercial radio station run by students. And so it was supported purely by ad revenue. So that was my entree into business was selling radio advertisements door to door and That's really where I got my first taste of business and my first taste of customer experience, even though back then the term customer experience wasn't even a term. And the reason I say I got my first taste of customer experience there was because what I saw in that role was how very small, seemingly subtle and insignificant aspects of the interactions that you have with customers or sales prospects can actually exert a very meaningful influence on their likelihood to buy from you, uh, to continue buying from you, to recommend you. You know, for example, I found that just the visual appeal of the radio station's price list for its advertising made a significant difference in terms of whether people actually move forward with a purchase or not. And so, you know, I ended up becoming sales director of the college radio station, and I got a great radio time slot uh, because I was bringing in the money for them. Uh, but I really enjoyed that. And that's kind of where I got the business bug. And I went for my MBA after college and then uh, worked for a little over 15 years in uh, the financial services industry, uh, working at Fortune 100 companies um, in senior executive roles that spanned uh, sales, marketing service, distribution, uh, even IT. Uh, And it was actually that experience of leading all of those different functional silos that made me start to think that I had something more to offer uh, to companies that were looking to deliver a great customer experience. Because one of the places where companies often fall down is they don't realize that their functional silos are working at cross-purposes. Um, You know, they're not coalescing around, around, you know, this one idea of a customer experience that they're trying to deliver. And so I thought the idea that um, I'd actually walked in the shoes of the head of IT, of the head of marketing, of the head of sales, of the head of service, that gave me a very unique perspective. And I had always dreamed of setting up my own consultancy. Uh, And so in 2009, I did that. I launched Watermark Consulting. Uh, And essentially, what Watermark does is um, helps companies to impress their customers and inspire their employees, uh, creating the kinds of raving fans that really drive business growth. Uh, And, um, you know, I never imagined it, but my cognitive science training uh, ended up coming in very handy in that role because what I learned after studying companies that do customer experience well is that they're really leveraging principles of psychology to shape people's perceptions and memories about the experience, as opposed to just the mechanics of the experiences themselves. And that's how I got here.
1: And what led you to name your company Watermark Consulting?
2: Oh, yeah. So um, thanks for asking that question because I love to tell that story. So. Um, Back in in old times, before there was Microsoft Word uh, and Google Docs, uh, when people wanted to put a watermark on a piece of paper, they actually did it by making a physical imprint in the parchment. And that physical imprint made the parchment appear richer and more distinctive. Sometimes it was actually used to prevent counterfeiting and duplication. Uh, And I chose the word watermark because that's basically what we do for companies, but with regard to their customer experience, we help them figure out how to watermark the experience in a way so that it doesn't leave an impression on a physical piece of parchment, but it leaves an indelible impression on the minds of the people that you're serving, um, helping to cultivate uh, the repurchase and referral behavior that's really the lifeblood of any business. Uh, and um, yeah, so that's actually a story I love to tell the people when we're first introducing Watermark to them, because I think the name kind of encapsulates what it is that, that we try to do for companies, um, to leave that indelible impression on their customers, and to do it in a way that's difficult for others to replicate, so you derive strategic advantage from it.
1: I love it. One of okay. the things that struck me while reading your book is this idea you have about creating an emotional connection with customers even when companies' products or services may not seem from a first glance to warrant one. And I can really relate to this. Companies get really focused on mechanics of delivering a great customer experience, and they forget to really step back and think about how my customer is feeling when they're interacting with me, with my company, with my team. Right. And over the last year, I was thinking more and more about How do we, firms consulting, create a more nurturing and extended family-like environment for clients and customers? And uh, I was wondering, could you share with us some ideas on how can any business create an emotional connection, even when it is not something that is easy to do based on the type of business you are in?
2: Yes, you're absolutely right that uh, emotion is one of the 12 principles. Stirring emotion is one of the 12 principles that's highlighted in the book. Uh, and, and just to take a step back for a moment to explain why it's so important, again, this gets to the cognitive science behind customer experience, because if uh, the the importance of, um, of memory, uh, you know, you could argue that how people remember their customer experience is arguably more important than the experience itself. And the reason I say that is um, take, for example, anyone that leads a consultancy. Uh, You know, take mine, for example, if um, someone were to approach one of my clients and say, hey, uh, you know, I remember you saying that you work with Watermark Consulting. Uh, What do you think of them? We're we're in the market for a customer experience consultant. How is your, you know, what what do you think of Watermark? The next thing that's going to come out of my client's mouth is not going to be based on the experience they had with Watermark. It's going to be based on what they remember about the experience with Watermark. And the way our brains are wired, those two things can actually be quite different. And so this gets to the this is the cognitive science of customer experience, and this is where emotion fits in, because emotion is actually a memory cue. Um, Experiences that are laced with emotion are far more memorable than those that are not. And so if you create interactions with people that are emotionally resonant, uh, it's more likely that they're going to remember them. Now, that, of course, works both ways if they have a horrible experience. That's very emo- you know. That's emotionally just uh, grating and and you know horrible. Uh, and, and for them, they're going to remember that to the end of days. But then conversely, if you deliver a great experience that resonates emotionally, they're going to remember that one. They're going to tell other people about it. It's going to influence their decision to work with you in the future. And so the thing with emotion, as you know, um, you know, when people hear about the idea and customer experience of creating, a, a, of infusing it with emotion. There are a lot of businesses that just sort of tune out. Because, you know, if I'm a dentist, or a lawyer, or a management consultant, I sort of step back and say, well, how am I supposed to do that? You know, I'm not Disney World, people aren't excited and enthusiastic about coming to me in the first place, necessarily. So how do I stir positive emotion in them? And The answer is that when it comes to stirring emotion, there are two ways to do it. One is to accentuate positive emotions. Uh, And it's easier certainly for a company like Disney World, you know, an organization like Disney World to do that because you're already excited and enthusiastic about going there. That's not to say other companies can't do it as well, but it's easier for the Disneys of the world. But then there's a separate way. And that is the idea of mitigating negative emotion. Uh, and, and, And what I mean by that is, If you're in a business where people sort of come to you and they likely come to the table with all kinds of negative emotions sort of weighing down on them you go to a dentist or a lawyer or whatnot you know and you're worried you're anxious you might be embarrassed am i going to understand what the what the lawyer you know says to me am i going to have to ask a stupid question whatever the negative emotion might be the point is that if you architect an experience which helps to take some of those negative emotions off of the table You will in totality be stirring the kind of compelling emotion that helps to cement the memory of that interaction in people's heads in a favorable way. So, as an example, you know, you ask about the consulting business. Uh, You know, one example about accentuating positive emotion is I always encourage people in that kind of professional uh, services business when somebody comes to you and asks for a proposal for a quote, you need to think about not giving them a quote, but giving them confidence. A quote is a mechanical, uh, you know, aspect of the experience, but confidence is an emotional part of the experience. So you don't just want to give people a number. What you want to do is really infuse them with a sense that, wow, this is the right partner for me, you know, based on their credibility, based on what they've done in the past, um, based on everything they're telling me, I just feel like I am going to be cared for, and it gives me confidence that I'm choosing the right partner. So that's an example of accentuating positive emotion in an industry where, you know, most people would say, how can I, you know, make people feel happy in in a consulting interaction? But then in addition, if you think about the negative emotions that people might come into in that that sales prospect uh, cycle of of hiring a consultant, it might be things like, well, who's actually going to work on my project? Uh, You know, the senior partner might come in, sell me on the engagement, and then they disappear, and somebody I've never met shows up and is training on my dime. Well, you have an opportunity during the sales cycle to mitigate that negative emotion by just being forthright and saying, hey, listen, here's how the staffing of your project is going to work. Let me lay it out for you. Here's how I will be involved as the principal. Here's how associates will be involved. So that's a way to take a concern that your prospect may be harboring, but perhaps doesn't articulate, and helping to take it off the table, which, again, is going to mitigate that negative emotion, create that more emotionally resonant interaction, which is going to leave them happier, and uh, they're going to remember it more positively. So that's an example of how to use emotion, even in a business where you might think, how does emotion possibly come into play?
1: Jonathan. Within your company, are there specific, maybe a couple of things that you and your team are doing to ensure positive emotions that customers are feeling when dealing with you?
2: Yeah, well, one that certainly comes to mind is just during the uh, proposal or the RFP process. Um, I think that many organizations, whether they're in the consulting business or others, if they are engaged, if they're in a B2B business and they're engaged in preparing RFPs, for example, I think many businesses treat that as an administrative exercise. Uh, You know, it's another RFP. We've got to cobble together the content from different places and cut and paste and, you know, get it out in the mail, send it an email, whatever. It's an administrative exercise. I don't think that they appreciate that just the mere act of a, a prospective client interpreting a proposal is part of their client experience with you. Uh, and the, for example, the visual appeal of that proposal, the information architecture of that proposal, uh, you know, the, the white space that is in the proposal, and, and how well there are signposts and headlines that help people to navigate it. These are all things that are um, covered within the 12 principles that the book describes, because just a document like that has the chance to either create complexity for people and to make them feel uh, concerned or anxious, or conversely, it can remove complexity, it can exude simplicity, and it can make people feel confident because they know exactly what you're going to do for them, exactly what they're going to get in return. So, that's certainly one example I would give uh, with a touch point that I think probably doesn't get uh, enough attention uh, in B2B businesses uh, because it's viewed as, as an administrative interaction as opposed to a bona fide part of the customer experience, even before somebody's a customer.
1: That's a great example. And one immediate question that came to my mind that I'm really want to ask you is obviously in any business and I'm sure you have that as well maybe to a lesser degree since you're dealing with B2B so it's uh, less quantity bigger projects but you probably sometimes have unhappy customers no matter how hard you try to deliver value in those situations do you have any go-to processes and things you do to try to deal with it and try to still ensure that the client, the customer leaves without negative feelings about your business, and they feel sure. like you have the value.
2: Sure. So uh, I think the important thing when you have a customer that is all unhappy and all dissatisfied, uh, first and foremost, you need to act with urgency, so that they see that you're being responsive to whatever concerns that they're airing. Uh, and you also have to be uh, an excellent listener, It is very easy, I think, when you're in a position of facing off with a customer that is expressing some kind of dissatisfaction. It's very easy to get defensive. It's very easy to, uh, you know, immediately try to jump in and, and sort of explain why what they're saying is inaccurate or it's not as they're perceiving it. That really doesn't get you anywhere. Um, You know, you want to give customers an opportunity to vent, an opportunity to explain themselves, because just that in and of itself will help them feel better and make them feel like, okay, this person's listening to me, they're at least, you know, listening to my concerns. Uh, And and then it's a matter of, you know, you've got to be a good listener, but then you've got to act, you've got to execute. And and it's a case of taking whatever feedback somebody has provided, uh, and taking personal ownership for addressing it. You know, I find that 99% of the time, what people want a customer in an interaction like that, they just want somebody to step forward and say confidently and convincingly, I am going to take care of this for you. I own this. I have your back. You know, because it's so often when, when people are dissatisfied in some way that they find they can't find a company representative who's willing to take ownership for helping them. You know, it's some. Um, it's a colleague. It's another department. Whatever. So I think you just have to take ownership, and after listening to their concerns, you have to do the best you can to address their concerns and to uh, engage in whatever remedial actions to to make them whole. And then the last thing I would say, uh, and this actually gets back, you know, the idea of recovery is covered in the book uh, in its twelve principles, as is the idea of finishing strong. Um, and these two are tied together because when you have a dissatisfied customer oftentimes that can happen at the end of an interaction actually most likely it does you know they're not satisfied with an with the end product and so they're they're complaining well the biggest risk there is that if you again you look at the cognitive science of customer experience the last thing that happens to people exerts a disproportionate influence on their overall impressions of the experience. Uh, It's called the recency bias in psychology. And so that's the very dangerous thing about a dissatisfied customer at the end of an engagement is no matter how well you did earlier in the engagement, that will all fall away from their memory and be eclipsed by the negativity of whatever they're feeling at the very end that is dissatisfying them. And so what's important to do is to think about how do you recover in style how do you overcorrect on the recovery so that you're not just making your client whole but you're adding in something a little bit extra uh something that's unexpected something that is going to help end the interaction on a high note that will eclipse the negativity of the failure and the dissatisfaction that that first brought you to this point point. and in the consulting arena that might be offering some some complimentary services uh, you know, to help make people feel good about the interaction, the way they've ended up, and and kind of, you know, giving a little icing on the cake there, something they weren't expecting. Um, it could even be something as simple as a handwritten note of apology. Uh, you know, the lost art of the handwritten note. People don't normally get handwritten notes from anyone these days, let alone a consultancy they might be working for. So if something didn't go quite as planned, even though you might have patched it up with the client, penning a handwritten note to them to just again apologize uh, and and, sort of just uh, uh, extend that olive branch to them, Um, that's something that would be unexpected. And it would help nudge the needle a little bit at the end of the interaction to start to turn the tide and get them to not sort of focus on the negatives of whatever they were dissatisfied about, but some of the positives about how you actually helped to resolve it and engage them afterwards.
1: Absolutely. And everything that you are sharing, just I want to highlight for our listeners that it's not only applicable to external customers. Even if you are not facing external customers, everything that John shares is actually applicable. John, can you just
2: explain? Yeah, uh, thanks for pointing that out. You know, the book actually spends a good deal of time at the beginning just even describing this term customer because a uh, customers should not be defined as just the individual or the entity that writes the check paying for your products or services. The fact of the matter is everybody in the workplace has a customer, even if you never interact with the end consumer or the end uh, institution that, that actually is using your products and services. And All of the principles that are described in the book um, can apply uh, to uh, any customer. You know, it can be, sometimes that customer may be an individual consumer. Uh, It may be uh, a business owner. It may be your colleague who's just a few steps away. It could be uh, one of your employees or even an employment candidate. These are all constituencies that I would argue are customers in their own right, because they are deriving value. They are seeking value from their interaction with you. Uh, And it's in your best interest to impress them, to turn them into lifelong fans. So that not only are you the company that everyone wants to work with, but maybe you're the employer that everyone wants to work for. You're the colleague that everyone wants on their team. You're the leader that everyone wants to follow. These are all things that are about creating a great customer experience for people. And the very same techniques that the Disneys and Starbucks and Costco's of the world use to do it with consumers can also be used to, uh, to do it with any other type of constituency.
1: Absolutely. And doing this actually helps you grow your revenue and decrease your costs. Can you share with us some exciting statistics you had in your book about that?
2: Yeah, so probably the the most eye-opening statistic that's in the book comes from uh, something that my firm started doing about a decade ago. It's called the Watermark uh, Customer Experience ROI Study. And basically what it does is it looks at the uh, cumulative shareholder return of companies that excel in customer experience versus those that are poor in it. It's based on consumer feedback surveys, so it's not like we're picking the companies that lead or lag, but we just use third-party research entities that do these annual surveys of consumers and rank hundreds of companies in the quality of the customer experience that they offer. In the the new book that I've authored, uh, you know, there's an updated version of the study that has now has 13 years of data, but if you look back to the last one that's um, actually publicly released, you know, it had very similar results. Uh, basically, the companies that lead in customer experience, based on consumer feedback, they outperform those that lag by a three to one ratio in total shareholder return. You know, to me, this is really the exclamation point on the case for customer experience. Because, you know, whether you're a public or a private entity, I think that that study and, and the centerpiece graphic, which is just so vividly illustrates it, so it's relevant whether you're a public or private entity, because what it's really saying is that the marketplace believes that companies that deliver a great customer experience over the long term uh, are simply more valuable than those that are not. Uh, and again, whether you're a public or private entity, that message should resonate. And you know, if you dive into that and you try to understand why is it that shareholders value those com- companies more, more highly, it really comes down to the fact that a great customer experience hits your income statement in two places. Um, it helps to raise revenue because you retain customers longer. People are less price sensitive when they're happy and, se- happy and loyal to you. They're less price sensitive. Uh, So you derive greater revenue from them um, based on your pricing. Uh, They entertain ideas for other products and services from you. And then, of course, they love you so much, they refer other people to you. So you derive entirely new revenue streams from all of those new customers. So you see sort of this revenue lift. But then there's a second side, which I think many companies overlook, and that is that a great customer experience actually also helps you to control, if not reduce, operating expenses. And a few examples why uh, it would include... Because you're getting so many referrals from your existing loyal customers, you actually don't need to spend as much on new business acquisition, on promoting, on advertising, and marketing. So that helps you reduce expenses. Uh, you also find that companies with lots of happy, loyal customers have fewer complaints. And when you have fewer complaints, it puts less stress on your operating infrastructure, which means you can deliver that better experience uh, at a more competitive cost. So you know there are a bunch of different dynamics that basically are juicing the profitability of these companies that deliver great customer experiences. And it's something that uh, you know resonates not just with Main Street, but clearly with Wall Street as well.
1: Absolutely. And also in your book, you speak about how the more customer support you have as a company, the less straightforward is your customer journey and that you need to dive in and look at each touch point and see why Customers have so many questions and concerns and need so much help. Could you expand on that?
2: Yeah. And so this goes back to that expense part of the equation, because one of the big levers uh, in terms of the economics of customer experience is you can deliver a better one for less by doing things right upstream so that it preempts dumb, avoidable customer contacts downstream. Not to call customers dumb, right? No question that they ask is dumb. But just between you and me, there are some questions that are just plain dumb, like they shouldn't have to ask this question. Yet every company I've ever worked with, you know, there's a significant proportion of incoming requests, whether it's at a retail store, whether it's at a call center, whether it's through email or chat. There's a significant volume of requests that, should, that come in that should never have to be asked if you had just done something different upstream. And you know, this is where looking at that full journey, as you say, is critical uh, because, for example, information that might be exchanged with a customer during the sales process, if it is ambiguous or confusing or perhaps even misleading in some way, what's going to happen? It's going to sow the seeds for later dissatisfaction and subsequent customer contact that might have been preempted if you had done something different in the sales process. You know, there's an example in the book with the travel company Expedia, where they found that 60% of the customers that booked online uh, travel at Expedia followed up with a phone call to the company, which was just simply shocking. It's an online self-service travel reservation company. Why on earth would 60% of their customers have to pick up the phone and then call them? And what they actually found was that the vast majority of those calls actually were people saying, I need a copy of my itinerary. That was their question. And it turned out the reason that they were asking was because Expedia had a lot of bad email addresses for people. And so when you booked the travel, the itinerary that was getting sent out wasn't getting to them. Their messages were getting caught by spam filters. Uh, When people didn't have the itinerary and wanted one, they couldn't just go to the website and get it. They couldn't even get it through the automated voice response system when they called. They had to speak to a live person. So Expedia changed a whole bunch of things that first made sure those itineraries got through to people, weren't caught by spam and whatnot. But then if people needed the itinerary, it gave them the ability to do it themselves, online or through the automated uh, 800 line. And they reduced the number of people that had a call from 60% to way down to, I think it was like 13%. Think of the impact that has on the expense structure of that organization to reduce inquiries by that amount. And they're delivering a better customer experience at the same time and letting their employees focus on inquiries that come in that really need the help of a live person, as opposed to something, you know, so simple and unnecessary as, Hey, can I have a copy of my itinerary? So yeah, you know, sometimes the, uh, the best customer service is the kind you never need because everything just works perfectly upfront upstream. And that's why I think it's very important for companies that, Uh, are embarking on customer experience improvement efforts that they need to think about why is it that people engage them in the first place for help? Because if you can diagnose ways to preempt some portion of those inquiries, of those contacts upstream, you're going to be able to deliver a better experience and do it at a more competitive cost.
1: Janet, can you speak about how would you apply this to management consulting? Any ideas you could share because we have a lot of listeners who are in management consulting and they're now thinking about how do they implement it?
2: yeah, I think um I think a key way to uh, handle this in management consulting is to make sure that you are very clearly setting expectations for people upfront about how the engagement is going to unfold because you know granted in consulting, it's not like there's a huge call center that, you know, people are calling with you know, manned by a thousand service reps, they're calling the partner or they're calling the, the associate consultant, but still that takes time right from the consultant in terms of actually doing the work and doing more you know, higher value activities. And, you know, in my experience, uh, one area where there's an opportunity to preempt unnecessary avoidable questions is with clients that just don't understand, Hey, what is the status of the project right now? What is coming next? When can I expect to get that, uh, that mid-project update? Or you know, when is that final report going to get to me? I think that if you do a good job laying out expectations for people upfront and keeping them extremely well-informed through every step in the consulting engagement, I think that helps uh, avoid unnecessary inquiries it also, it hits on a lot of cylinders, because let's go back to the emotion discussion we had. Think of the emotion that that gives people. It removes ambiguity. It creates confidence and certainty, which makes them feel better about that whole experience. So merely by setting expectations, you actually can can hit a lot on a lot of the 12 principles that are covered in the book and, and make clients feel a lot better about the engagement.
1: Absolutely. John, you deal with a lot of clients. you help many companies. What is the biggest mistake companies make when embarking on a customer experience improvement effort?
2: Wow, there are so many to choose from. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think that uh, the first thing I would say is that in my 30 years of experience, the number one driver that I have seen, the number one best indicator of success in any customer experience transformation uh, is executive commitment. And, you know, that sounds soft and nebulous perhaps, but what I mean by that is executives who don't just issue the clarion call for people to focus on the customer, but weave that through every interaction, every declaration, every communication that they have in the workplace, because people need to see that, That clarion call for customer experience excellence is not just corporate window dressing. It's not just good annual report copy. It's something that is being infused in the fiber of the organization. So that's one. And and I actually go so far as to tell uh, potential clients that, listen, if, if you're not prepared to demonstrate that level of commitment as a senior leadership team, then you should just walk away and not even do this. Because the worst thing that you can do is declare to an organization, hey, we are going to focus on customer experience. And then if they don't see you walking the talk, it just erodes credibility even further in the whole idea of the organization being customer centric. And so you actually end up in a worse place uh, after that than before. So that's definitely one thing that I would mention. A second too would be making sure that there is clarity around just what the term customer experience is, because people throw that, that term around, uh, you know, kind of cavalierly, and they don't realize that it means very different things to different people. And, you know, what I mean by that is I find with a lot of organizations, when you use the term customer experience, anybody in sales, they tune out, because they think customer, they, they think customer experience is synonymous with customer service. When you say customer experience, they think, well, you know, that's that, that's the people in the call center. Uh, you know, that's not us in sales. But in truth, customer experience is not synonymous with customer service. Uh, customer, the customer experience begins before somebody's even a customer. Uh, it begins when they are a prospect, it begins when salespeople are, are interacting with them. And so I think, that, um, I think that's critical to make sure that the organization has a, a common definition, a shared nomenclature around just what we mean when we utter that term, uh, customer experience. And then I know you asked for one, but I'm going to give you a, thir- a, a third and final idea here.
0: Yeah. I think
2: many organizations neglect to appreciate how there are two sides to the customer experience coin. By that, I mean, there is that, that onstage experience that customers see. That's the traditional customer experience that people think about when they hear that term. But then there's what I call the backstage piece. And that's everything that's happening behind the curtain. It is, to use another term de jour, uh, the employee experience. It is the degree to which employees in the workplace feel engaged, inspired, and equipped to deliver the great customer experience that you're aspiring to create. And I think that many organizations, they don't fully appreciate how workplace constructs and the environment in which their employees are asked to operate actually influence their behaviors and have an impact on the quality of the experience that's ultimately delivered to that end customer. So that's another place where I think many companies go wrong is they're just focusing on whether it's the website, the mobile app, the call center, the stuff that customers can see, feel, hear, and touch. And, they, and that's all you know, accurate, they should focus there, but they also need to look behind the curtain and they need to think about what obstacles and hindrances are hampering their employees' best efforts to deliver that consistently great experience.
1: Janet if we ask the same question, but about management consulting, management consulting firms, will your
2: answer change? You know, I don't think that it would. I think that if you think about a successful consulting engagement, there are a lot of players that really have to be aligned in order to deliver that engagement successfully to the end client. And sometimes a lot of those players are not ones that have regular interaction with the client. They're people that might be crunching numbers behind the scenes, uh, writing reports, uh, you know, doing interviews, who knows. But the point is that I think in any business, consulting uh, or, or any other, that 99% of the people that come to work, they come to work wanting to do a great job for you, your organization, and your clients. But I think that where many organizations go wrong is inadvertently, they don't realize this, but inadvertently, they are putting obstacles in front of their employees that make it difficult for them to deliver that consistently great experience. It might be The data analysis tools that they have available to them to do their work. You know, it might be the number of meetings that are scheduled and how much time they have to sit back and think or to actually work on deliverables for clients. These are all things that I think partners and and managers and consulting firms need to pay careful attention to, to basically make sure that they are giving their staff the freedom and the tools to really reach their potential not only their own personal potential, but also to fulfill obligations, promises, and commitments to the clients that you're working with. So yeah, I don't think that my answer would be any different. I think consulting organizations are like any other in the sense that you've got to make sure the team that's working to to the benefit of your client is engaged, equipped, and inspired to go the extra mile and deliver that great client experience.
1: And if we would look at opportunities, not mistakes, but opportunities, For management consulting terms, given that many of our listeners are in management consulting, what would you say those opportunities are in terms of improving and differentiating their customer experience?
2: Yeah, sure. You know, I think if I look at something that I feel has worked very well for my firm, uh, it is the notion of banishing platitudes. I think that a lot of people in business... I'm sure I'm not telling, you know, your listeners anything they don't already know. But let's face it, business people are, are sometimes a little skeptical of consultants. They sort of feel like, okay, yeah, you know, they they sort of descend on my campus, descend on my building or whatever. They, they look at things, they sort of come down from the mountaintop with, you know, the stone tablets saying, you know, here's what you should do. But sometimes they view it as it's kind of 30,000 foot direction. It's sort of strategic. And I fear, and I actually can say from personal experience, back when I was in the corporate world, and, and I was hiring consultants, that one thing that I found distinguished the good ones from the not so good ones was coming back to me not with platitudes, but with really actionable, detailed tactical suggestions so that there was absolutely no ambiguity for me about what I should do next coming out of that consulting engagement and that's an area i'd say of opportunity for any consultancy is the notion that it's not enough you really never want to make sure that your clients never feel like you are speaking in platitudes, that, you know, you are are just communicating views to them in some sort of academic sense that they just don't know exactly what to do with it. And so I think that the more detailed guidance that you can provide to people, I think that that's extremely appreciated. And I think that helps elevate their impression about the entire engagement as a result.
1: Absolutely. John, another question I have for you is, Let's say we have a company with a very constrained budget, and they want to offer better customer experience. So since it would cost them most likely more to offer better customer experience, I was wondering if you could share what are the few things they should start with?
2: Sure. So going back to something we talked about a little earlier, um, this is an important myth to bust. Uh, You know, this idea that every company thinks, well, gee, if we're going to deliver a better customer experience, that's obviously going to cost more, which is, as I explained earlier, is not necessarily the case. There are a lot of reasons why a better customer experience can actually cost less. And so, uh, you know, for a company in the situation that you've just described, one that is budget constrained, can't really invest ahead of the curve in order to deliver that better experience what they really need to look for are opportunities for those experience improvements to be self-funding and self-funding in the relative short-term so that they're not laying out a lot of investment that you know, a lot of cash that they don't really have in advance. And so I think the key there is to focus on those uh, upstream opportunities that we talked about that help preempt those downstream inquiries and customer contacts that are really unnecessary. So one thing, for example, I think a company can do is, even if it's an informal tally, do a tally to over, you know, what, a two-week period, a month period, and do a tally of all of the reasons why people contact your organization. And I'm not talking about sales inquiries here. I'm talking about after, you know, the product or the service is sold, why is it that people are contacting you? Now, this is very important to, 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 to categorize it by the why not by the what, because the why is actually, actually actionable. Uh, you know, it, a lot of companies categorize their incoming inquiries by, by just the what. You know, it's a billing uh, question, or uh, it's a question about, you know, the pricing of the product, whatever. But if you categorize it by why people are calling, you know, then you have the opportunity to look, for example, at the top five reasons why people are contacting you. And with any organization that I have ever done this with, some portion of those top five things are things that don't need to be asked. You know, there are opportunities to do something different upstream that will eliminate the need for customers to make that outreach. And what that means then is you're delivering that better experience. And you're reducing the stress on your internal infrastructure because you're not, you're, you're not going to be getting as many of those calls, emails, whatever coming in. So that would be one suggestion I would have for companies that are budget constrained and looking to improve the experience. Related to that, and a second idea I would share is the idea of um, being relentless in rooting out repeat contacts. So by repeat contacts, I'm not talking about those dumb, avoidable contacts that never have to occur. I'm talking about the second iteration of them. So, uh, you know, customers reach out to you and then you find that a week, two weeks or a month later, they have to reach out to you again on the same topic. That is extremely toxic. That sucks up resources in a very unnecessary way. And if you can put your finger on ways to root out repeat contacts, that's another great way to deliver a better experience because customers only have to contact you once. It's sort of one and done. You know, they, they get the answer to their question. They get their transaction executed, whatever. And you eliminate a whole array of customer contacts that are fueling expenses because you're cutting out those repeats. So that would be another idea I, I would share with companies that are cost-constrained. No repeats should be the mantra. There should never be repeat interaction. You want to root those out, take them off the table.
1: That's great advice. John, so as you know, as everyone knows, the world is changing. We have a global pandemic. Many things are changing now. What do you think is the future of customer experience? What people should be thinking about? How do they change with changing times to stay relevant?
2: Yeah, I guess the the way I would answer that is, you know, I I would really point to something that is uh, an evergreen concept in effective customer experience management. And that is the notion of creating relevance for your customer. And by relevance, I mean, making sure that you are delivering products and services that resonate with their needs, whether it is an overt need, whether it is a latent need. Uh, you know, whether it is an aspiration or a hope that people have. um, It's about delivering something that they derive value from. And the reason I reference that in in my answer is because you talk about the changing times that we're in. Creating relevance for customers really requires, it's not a point in time thing. It really requires immersing yourself in your customers' lives on a continuous basis so that as the environment changes and their needs change and evolve. You've got your finger on their pulse and you're able to adjust your offerings uh, in turn. And so I think that you know the way I like to describe it to people is um, you really want to go out into the wild and you want to interact with and observe your customers in their natural habitat. I find that the most brilliant game-changing insights in any business, in any time, Uh, come not from dry market research reports or antiseptic focus group rooms. They come from going into the wild and stepping into your customer's shoes, looking at the world from their perspective, having in-depth discussions with them and really understanding their lot in life. And that's really where great innovations arise because you learn about things you never knew about your customers, evolving needs that they have that you might have a way to address that they never even thought to ask you about because they never imagined that you could help them. And I think that, you know, in the pandemic, it's been a great example has really highlighted companies that do this effectively. Uh, you know, if you look at firms that were quick to roll out curbside uh, pickup and no contact options, um, firms like one that's um, highlighted in the book is uh, Woolworths, which is an Australian grocery store and retailer, They were one of the first in the world to offer early, extra early hours for at-risk customers when the pandemic first began. So what they found is when they stepped into their customer's shoes, they began to see that senior citizens and people who were at risk due to various health conditions were afraid to come to the store during the onset of the pandemic because the stores were really crowded with people just trying to hoard supplies and whatnot. So what Woolworths did is they created... You know, these exclusive hours, I think between 7 and 8 a.m. Uh, you know, in the morning, where just senior citizens, just people at risk were welcome to come in. It was much less crowded. And they, of course, were much more comfortable shopping at that time. Now, imagine if you were a Woolworths customer and the company offered that to you. Imagine the impact that it has on your brand impression of Woolworths. You know, talk about emotional resonance. You know, if I'm immunocompromised, And I I just want to go to the grocery store at the onset of the pandemic. I want to get my, you know, core supplies and whatnot. I love Woolworths because they've now created a facility for me to do that safely. And I'll tell you, those people who benefited from that, they are going to be lifelong customers of Woolworths because that firm really came through from them. But in my view, that's about creating relevance. They figured out something that was relevant to an emerging need, relevant to their to their target market, and they did something to address it. And I think that's the kind of thinking that every company needs to engage in, whether during pandemic times or after pandemic times, to make sure you're staying ahead of the curve, and not only addressing your customers' current needs and hopes and aspirations, but also the ones in the future that are just starting to germinate.
1: John, and let's imagine somebody who is either probably junior partner level. They already responsible for sales, they are in management consulting. And how would they apply your advice related to stepping into customer shoes, understanding what is relevant?
2: Yeah. You know, I think that that one way is to actually sit down and spend time with your a prospective client or a current client and, and have an in-depth conversation with them about tell me about the best consulting engagement. That you ever had in the past. And tell me exactly what was it that it delivered to you that made it so good? Or conversely, tell me about a consulting engagement that you had that was just awful and that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. And what exactly was it about it? You know, did they suck up your time unnecessarily? Did they give you status reports that you couldn't understand and they had trouble sifting through? I mean, you don't know what the response is going to be, but I think it's so easy for consultants just to jump into the work at hand that that's one way to immerse yourself in your client's life is to step back with them and say, hey, let's forget just for a moment about the current engagement at hand. So I can better understand the way that you most effectively work with consultants. Let's talk about your prior experiences, the best ones and the worst ones so that I can learn from that and make sure that we are tailoring our engagement for you in a way that's going to best meet your unique needs. I think that's a very effective way for for consultants to create a relevant experience uh, for their clients. But again, it's something that is unnatural, I think, for many consultants to take the time to have that conversation because it's sort of all business. You know, We just want to jump in. We want to start working on the engagement, start uh, hammering out those deliverables. But there's value in in stepping back and sitting down and having that conversation
1: absolutely john this has been incredible are there any questions that i haven't asked but should have asked any insights that you would like to share to conclude this amazing discussion we had
2: yeah you know i think you've asked a lot of great questions and i think that you know one thing i'd maybe add for people is, is really just kind of the central premise of the whole book and really of everything that Watermark does for our clients. And that is the idea that if you are aspiring to satisfy your customers, then you are aspiring to mediocrity. That really is my view. And I think that's a statement that applies in any industry, um, You know, certainly within the consulting industry. And the reason I say it is because studies have shown satisfied customers defect all the time. If you want to derive competitive advantage, strategic advantage, economic advantage from the experience that you deliver, it is not enough to merely satisfy your clients. You need to impress them. You need to leave that indelible impression that we were talking about earlier, that watermark in their heads, that's going to make them want to work with you again, Uh, And want to tell others about you, to rave about you. So that's one thing that I would encourage your listeners, you know, to to really focus on this idea that satisfaction, client satisfaction is not the right objective. That is sub-optimizing. You really want to seek not to satisfy, but to impress all with whom you do business, whether it's end clients or even just the colleagues that are a few steps away from you in the office.
1: Crucial point to make. John, how can our listeners learn more about your work?
2: Sure, so one way that they can learn more about the book is at the book's official website and that is impressed2obsessed.com. That's impressed, the number two, uh, obsessed.com. They can also uh, learn more about Watermark at watermarkconsult.net or they can learn more more about me and uh, my keynote speaking services at johnpico.com. That's J-O-N-P-I-C-O-U-L-T.com.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, John. We really appreciate having you on the show. Talk to you soon.
2: Thank you.
0: That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.